0: I hope you guys
1: have got, like, subtitles for this one. Like, I was going to say, there's Scottish a lot of... Scottish, yeah.
0: Irishman is like
1: yeah.
2: yeah, yeah. As long as you all speak very slowly, we'll be fine.
1: Yeah.
2: We thought, actually, Hannah, would you mind, because I think most of the viewers will be familiar with it, because you're working in quite an important field at the moment. Could you explain a little bit about what you're doing?
0: Well, so I'm a researcher at Oxford Uni, Um, And my primary role is for this online publication called Our World in Data, and we cover, we kind of sit between research and the public and try to communicate what research says across a really broad range of topics, so everything from poverty to climate change to plastics to malaria and other health aspects, but um, what we're, I mean, what we've been working on for the past two months or so is just basically only coronavirus, Um, so we basically try to take the global statistics um, on deaths, cases, tests, and make them really accessible for everyone um, to see how uh, countries are doing, how they compare, um, and make all of that information accessible and digestible.
2: Excellent. So, because I mean, I think we really wanted to. St- we we thought this one would set the scene because it's impossible to escape. It'd be weird if we did a conference without talking about it. Since everyone's watching this from the comfort of their own home, and possibly three of the most well-researched people I I know and never have ever spoken to, it might be quite good to get you on a panel and talk about it. Agreed. Um, <laughs> and modest too. Yeah. Very. <laughs> um, so. I'd quite like to open it up to all of you in that I've heard you speak about this, David, especially, is that um, when it comes to disinformation, that it's it's almost an ethical consideration in terms of the platform that we give it and that should we give it the same platform as that we, you know, we hopefully should give the evidence-based stuff that we want people to believe in. It almost Mm. opens it up as 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 a debate to be had if we offer it the same platform.
3: Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's there's this weird double-edged sabre. We live in a paradoxical era, of course, because we've never had more access to information. And yet, at the same time, it's never been easier for disinformation to circulate. And we've never been good at distinguishing the two of them. But now that we're so flooded with it, our our flaws are particularly apparent. And there is this level when, uh, particularly, I suppose, we can't avoid coronavirus. I have spent most of my last two weeks telling people no 5g is not causing coronavirus please stop burning down mobile phone masks thank you very much um but the thing about that is that information is out there much more accessible to people on say social media than the more sober drier scientific facts indeed hannah is probably in a similar boat trying to convey this kind of thing uh, to people and then you get into the question of platforms and social media is a particular one like if you go looking for information where's the first place you go looking and all of us go and Google stuff, and if we Google stuff, we're being fed back into algorithms by companies and people with their own agendas. It is a strange and deep question. My phone heard my my phone heard Google and decided to look up Google. I'm going to turn that off. Wow.
1: <laughs> Edward Snowden would have a few ideas. <laughs> it's,
3: cre- it's creepy when you think about it.
4: Does anyone know where the five G? 5G- idea came from
3: I know a little bit about it it's actually not a new idea there was um, originally similar claims were made about HIV in the 1980s when it was still called grid or gay related immunodeficiency and the idea it was man-made or triggered by radio signals if that sounds very very familiar that's because it's there's nothing new under the Sun it's just a recycled conspiracy theory what I do find historically interesting is when that started to be a conspiracy theory in the 1980s the soviet secret services thought this is a great rumor to push to upset the americans and we now have evidence that chinese and russian secret services have been quite happy to push this because it causes societal distrust it causes confusion which is beneficial to people that want to, to act on it so nothing new under the sun i'm afraid
4: oh i also did hear um rumors about Coronavirus being a gay disease, or or sent to kill the gays by a priest who then got it. I think was it
2: is it is this the same <laughs> one as the frogs? I've not
4: <laughs> heard the frogs. It's the frogs
2: that's oh, that. was
5: David
3: Robert yeah. story about the frogs. I, I
2: can't tell you about the frogs. David has to yeah. tell you about the frogs.
3: Uh, it's Alex Jones who famously, and you can look it up. And I, I reckon, if you Alex Jones, famous conspiracy theorist, screaming at a camera that they're putting chemicals in the water to turn the frogs gay. And he turns to the camera and screams, they're making the freaking frogs gay! And it's amazing. So
2: enjoy. Enjoy.
4: Okay, thank you. I I think that was... Um... I think that's everyone's
2: next Google search.
3: <laughs> I put my phone in airplane mode just so it doesn't look it up for me. <laughs> Again. Okay, yeah, the 5G thing
4: was interesting. Okay, so... Moving on from that, what are we what do we wanna should disinformation be given the same platform? Is that more about like should we talk about this information? And then in what ways do we is, is it well, good the, to the, almost um
1: the way that we on- talk about it is already a problem because you have this um, you have this general platform in, in the media, in the mainstream media where um, you know, the, the, the classic kind of example is you, you have the scientific community in relation to climate change, where there's just overwhelming acceptance within the community that, uh, you know, anthropogenic global warming is a thing. And then, you know, you go on Fox News and they bring on one climate expert, but in the interest of fair and balanced bring on, you know, Bill from Alabama, who doesn't buy climate change. And so it's this, it's even the way that we portray information in the interests of fair and balanced. And I think that the problem can arise even at that level of, you know, this idea that we fall a bit too easily back on the concept of what, you know, oh, we're, we're democratic, therefore freedom of press, freedom of information and all this stuff. And th- those principles can be upheld without making it seem like two ideas are a competing hypothesis so that that, that, that's the problem because either disinformation or just completely quack views are able to get a platform as if they are competing hypotheses oh this is just one guy's opinion this is another opinion they're equally valid um you know and, and and that's an issue you know every i guess everyone has their various areas where they're, where they're combating that. Um, you know, the, the biggest fight that I've had over the last couple of months and, and maybe you guys are aware of it has, has, has been with the kind of lipid skeptics. Um, and so people who basically deny that there's a, a causal role for LDL cholesterol in, in heart disease. Um, and you know, we have this body of evidence that is almost unprecedented in, in biological sciences for, for supporting that causal role for LDL and atherosclerosis. Uh, and then we have these arguments that are raised, often bringing up really niche nuanced points that are actually accounted for in in that evidence base, but are then presented as if they 're a competing hypothesis with as much legitimacy and weight as as the initial one and so I, I think that I think that there's some kind of fundamental flaws even in the media sense in the way that that these conversations are brought to the public. Um, and I, I'm not sure that there's an easy way around that short of getting rid of Rupert Murdoch's <laughs> media empire. Not against it. Yeah, I'm I'm pro. <laughs> I, think the back
0: I think it's, that's a, a major issue at the best of times. So climate change, mm-hmm. general vaccination, skepticism. But I think it's heightened even more in this current situation when actually, um, a lot of the science is unknown, because science is also trying to catch up. Um, So, you know, in these kind of climate debates, you can kind of almost get away with it, because the experts are pretty solid on what's happening. Um, In this current situation, like, even between scientists, there's back and forward of trying to figure out what's actually going on. So it's actually very easy to slip in a kind of conspiracy theory in it for it to get enough traction. And for yeah. actually for scientists to actually struggle to actually fully debunk it because they're already still trying to have their own conversations on what's actually going on
1: right yeah. and, and that that that's a problem with the manner in which the public perceives science and then the kind of disconnect between between science just as, as a broad area you know irrespective of the sub-discipline is this if you know for people in science uncertainty is just a part and parcel, like it's, it's what you deal with. We don't, you deal, you don't necessarily deal with certainties, you deal with probabilities. Um, and it's very difficult to convey probabilistic thinking to a population at large. And people in the public then are, are very easily kind of dismayed by, oh, the scientists said one thing three weeks ago and now they're saying another. Whereas that's just the scientific process at work. And it's, it's very difficult then to actually convey to people, know that this is just science doing its job, um, as, as opposed to these, these you know, this new area where there's this information coming you know, at, a, at a rate of knots, and people are still you know, putting their minds to it and, and, and forming new hypotheses and running with them. It's very difficult to convey to the public that this is actually science just working, and it's totally normal that you've got people with conflicting opinions.
3: And I think to to follow on from what you both said, um, because I'm in, we're all in agreement, it's a very interesting panel, we all agree. But one of, one of the things we have to be careful of in these situations is we, we've we already used our climate change skeptic or LDL skeptic. I think we have to draw a distinction to synthesize what Alan said about the scientific method. Skepticism is a healthy thing where you ask questions mm-hmm. and you want to know something, but we're actually talking about denialism. And I deal with yes. that, particularly with anti-vaxxers who claim they're vaccine skeptics. They're not, they're ignoring the evidence to preserve the belief. And I think what, and, and particularly in the COVID-19 situation, we're seeing very transient information. We're seeing science do its thing, where we learn, we update, we, we update our hypotheses as we go, we test ideas. They don't work, we throw them out, unless we're the American president, in which case we keep them. Um, but in general, that's what we do. We synthesize and we continue. That is science doing the right thing. Denialism is is when you deliberately ignore that. And I guess when you have the false balance problem, which uh, Alan has kind of very eloquently explained already, um, one of the ways we can deal with that a little bit, and I, I've come at this from the vaccine angle quite a bit, is I often get a call, sometimes even from institutions as August as BBC, kind of going, will you come on to debate this person that says vaccines don't work? And I'll be like, I wouldn't debate the existence of Greenland, so no, I won't, right? <laughs> we will debate, we will debate, like uh, opinions but we will not debate facts and I think one of the problems with media and and social media as well is that we're putting adversarial stances on things that should be discussions. A really good way to cover say climate like denialism or or, or people's misconceptions about COVID-19 is to have it as a discussion. Some people say this but the evidence suggests that it's not. I mean to acknowledge that these are points of view but to explain in context that they're not really well supported, and to certainly not give them a platform, to not inadvertently put them on the same pedestal as scientifically backed information. And that is a mistake that is all too often made in mainstream press, so. Right,
1: and I, I think as well, yeah, because one thing that, that that I've become more conscious of in the last year, that I've been very guilty of in the past is because you get frustrated in some of these conversations and the tendency is to become a little bit didactic with, look, you just, you know, and the problem with that then is, you know, it becomes uh, easy to perceive people, you know, in uh, a scientific discipline or communicating science as kind of arrogant and, and kind of authoritarian. Um, And there, there's, there's, I think that the the, the the what you've just articulated I find really interesting because you're going to have people that are just denialist but you're also going to have a lot of people in listening to these conversations that may not be very vocal that are actually just maybe scared or confused and so it's important to not make them feel stupid or or yeah basically or or stupid or, or whatever for maybe being because, because you know humans are humans and if they've just received this information and they've got it from a couple of angles and as you said those, the algorithms go to work and now all they're getting is is to stick with your example anti-vaccine information you know they're going to get bombarded with that information and they may just be thinking of a place of fear and confusion And so alienating them by making them feel silly for for having thought this in the first place is going to lose someone else probably to denialism when they weren't necessarily at that point in the first place.
3: Absolutely. And one of the things that we have found, and the nice thing is I I go back to vaccination because it's such a public health problem. A lot of research has been done on it about what works and what doesn't. And again, people who don't vaccinate their children are not necessarily anti-vaccine they have been frightened by the information they've received and they become vaccine hesitant. hesitant. So what actually happens is you can reach those people, but you certainly won't reach them if you mock them, if you disengage, if you don't take their fear seriously. We're seeing something similar with the conspiracy theories we're all exposed to at the moment. That The people, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that burning down 5G masks, but I genuinely am spending most of my day, at least an hour a day for the last few weeks, talking to people. To, to assuage their fears and to show them that no, they've been misled by this information, for they are actually the victims of this. Even if they, yes. they're perpetuating it inadvertently, they are victims of the Alex Joneses of this world who are telling them this crap. So it's mm-hmm. it's it's a really subtle problem to address, not an easy mm-hmm. one for sure. Yeah, I think
0: that, that's a really important point. And I think the like another important point to highlight is that the people that really, really push this information are also not stupid. And should not be dismissed as stupid like they can make often very very convincing arguments which someone that's kind of in the middle maybe slightly confused or slightly scared or actually on many topics has just never really thought about it like most people have never really thought about why the climate changes or um, what some of the side effects of vaccines might be or even in nutrition thought about um, those aspects and if people can make a really, or what sounds like a very convincing argument, then it's very, very easy to buy into it.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think certainly within the kind of cholesterol denialist community, you've got a, you've got a few people at the, at the helm who are very intelligent, and very articulate, are able to, to anyone as an onlooker, make an argument sound very scientific, very convincing, and people will think that this, this is the science um and so again you know in that context the 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 victims are the people that are you know a 55 year old's heart disease risk that are now you know refusing statins or you know or 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 pharmacotherapy because they're simply scared that oh my god i've I listened to this UK cardiologist. He said, these drugs are are toxic and I should go on them, you know? And, and so they're, they're the victim. We named <laughs> them. The yeah. Um, see, Malhotra. Yeah. Yay. <laughs>
3: yeah. Um, but the, you get similar with the keto people. Like I, I work yes. mainly in cancer research and I spend so much time with patient groups and it comes up all the time. People go, well, I've heard keto cures cancer. There's always a grain of truth. That's been horrifically distorted. Right. So this is why it looks scientific. So it's true, for example, with the keto diet that yes, you know, tumour cells do pre- re- upregulate their glucose consumption, but that's not the cause of cancer. That's a consequence of cancer due to two or three mutations on the HIF-1-alpha, it's all that kind of stuff. But that grain of truth is distorted by keto evangelists into, right. you can cure cancer if you don't, or you won't get cancer if you just eat meat all the time,
1: mm-hmm. and I'm banging my head <laughs> off a table going, <laughs> the irony.
3: But it, it does yeah. damage people because they yeah. take this on board and it has a little grain of truth,
1: right. albeit twisted. But what, what what does then that do for for people in our position who do have a, a public facing kind of role in, in some description? Make when it drink comes, more. right true. But when it comes to trying to speak at a level where we're differentiating between the kind of the denialists, the the actual, shall we say, that the helm Kind of henchmen of a movement um versus the kind of silent majority of people who are maybe hesitant scared confused um and how do we communicate uh, disseminate information in a way that's not only responsible but convincing enough for them to go okay well I, I, i've been confused by this crowd but i've heard this now and i'm going to go with this information and i think and currently, that may be a battle that we're losing. Just broadly speaking, yeah. across a range of scientific disciplines.
3: I think Hannah might know more
1: on this one. So I, I think mean, we the defer key is just
0: to make pretty colorful maps, and people love it. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, amazing. No, but I get like that's actually a, like a primary motivation for the job that I do. Like I, like I could be in traditional research and just write research papers all the time, and I, I choose not to because I feel like I probably don't add a lot of value in that role because. There are millions of people in the world that are really amazing researchers and can do that. Um, but even, even within the academic system, they're just really, really hard to facilitate the type of job that I do. We're kind of outcasts and it's just, it's difficult to find even the funding um, because you're not putting out traditional research type stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and
0: I think that's the massive gap. Like all of the, the, all of the research is there um, and is very clear. It's just not being communicated well.
5: Yes. Why do you think that is, Hannah?
0: Um, when you do, I mean, when you do go through science degrees, like you get almost no training in scientific communication. It's almost like a kind of backseat. And like, and now it's kind of tried to be embedded and like uh, universities like to talk the talk in terms of all the researchers have to do outreach and engagement. It's the same as they always say they do interdisciplinary research and it's, Mm. it's kind of a tick box, but it never
1: really is. It's a a tick box. Yeah. Um, You know, even now, like I know there's a couple of the, um, you know, doctoral college programs uh, at the university where where people can like do these kind of like public speaking courses and stuff but like for the most part you know they're not there there's there's nothing to them there's no substance to them you're not going to take someone who you know is 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 doing something like that just so they can get up and give a, pre- a poster presentation at a conference you know they're, they're never going to want to to go into you know a kind of more public facing role um,
0: yeah this so it's not a natural progression like- is it no, I mean there's little incentives. Like I know that I'm like from my kind of academic career point of view, like I'm not. There's no way that I'm optimizing climbing the ladder. Like I can never get up to a professor doing what I'm doing because you need papers, and and that's what people spend all the time on because that's the that's the only way to basically climb the ladder.
3: Yeah, but we're also seeing the downside of that in a huge way. I should point out. So one of my other research, like I'm I, I agree entirely with Hannah said because. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, I I do a lot of it as well. It doesn't help your career. In fact, it hinders it quite a bit, but I think that we have a duty and responsibility. As scientists, if you have the ability to communicate, which not everyone does to a great extent, that you ought to use that and you ought to share it. But one of the other problems with scientists, and this is where it gets slightly more nuanced, sometimes the science, and we're seeing this with COVID-19 in particular, sometimes it's not good. I mean, I spend a lot of my research time debunking other scientists' work because something gets out there that should, at the moment, I'm taking apart a cancer paper that should never have been published, that's led to knock-on effects. So then you're asking the general public to trust the scientific method, but not necessarily the science itself. We've seen um, two or three conflicting papers on different drugs for COVID-19 that have got huge media traction. And then people come up and quite reasonably, as Alan and Hannah have indeed alluded to, they go, well, why is the science changing all the time? And sometimes it's because we're naturally discovering more things. And sometimes it's because this ridiculous publisher perish pressure has made mm-hmm. people put out results that are quite frankly abysmal and should never have right. seen the light of day. Right. So there's a dual problem going on and scientists are not guilt free it yeah. either. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: I mean, there was a, there was a paper, um, there's been actually two that, 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 I have had flicked on where just reading the title you'd think okay so one one actually came out of a, an irish group and it was the suggestion in the title was vitamin d protected against coronavirus and it's when i got sent paper, the paper right when i got yeah, sent the paper i thought that maybe they had done like a cross-sectional study or so something relatively quick it's basically a narrative review on vitamin d and other respiratory conditions that then makes this extrapolation <laughs> that yeah. if it's if it benefits other respiratory conditions then hey maybe um yeah
2: and that and that, that little grain of truth that people then run with
1: yeah, yeah. and so you're, you're right i i think you, we it, it's important we don't kind of paint science as an ivory tower yeah. <laughs> like and, <laughs> and the what, publisher perish aspect yeah. can be problematic
3: well you pointed out the vitamin i'm glad someone else read that paper and almost had a conniption because i i think my blood pressure went to alarmingly high levels having yeah. read that paper But the other thing that I won't get involved in, and it's a public discussion one, but it's just not worth the hate on it. uh, There's people in the scientific community who are making very strong statements about whether we should be wearing masks or not, right? Right. And when I talk to epidemiologists and people that do public health, they're like, well, the evidence for community mask use is pretty limited. It's hard to know. If it is, it's got a marginal effect, right? And then I've seen primary physicians who have big profiles saying, we should all be wearing masks and on some of them saying we don't need social distancing if we wear masks and i'm sitting here going no no no. see that's not we can't go beyond what the evidence says we got to be really careful of that mm-hmm. but because people are so emotional about this at the moment mm-hmm. i have like i've made the mistake of saying on twitter at one stage you know look if you're going to wear masks maybe don't wear them around your chin you know if, if you're going to do it and that was enough to cause people to get outrage going how dare you tell people not to wear masks which wasn't what i was doing so you have to be emotional emotions into these things as well and sometimes the evidence is just not there one way or another and i don't think people like that that's the uncertainty I, I, of science
5: i thought it was really interesting actually the the other day when and and you might be able to correct me on this if, if i'm wrong about what i what i extrapolated from it myself but um i think that sometimes when it comes to to the general public and the uncertainty around what scientific language actually means Um, the World Health Organization had said something about how there is no evidence that having coronavirus confers immunity against coronavirus onto the person who's had it. And everybody was up in arms about this because they were interpreting it as saying it doesn't confer immunity. Um, And then the World Health Organization then put out a further statement to say, just to clarify what we said, um, we don't have evidence to confirm that that's the case. We do believe that that It is the case to some degree, either there is some amount of immunity and it lasts for some amount of time, but we have no studies to confirm that this is in fact the case. And it was that was a really interesting lesson in, in kind of scientific communication for me because they'd used scientific language and people had essentially interpreted the World Health Organization's opinion to be the opposite of what it actually was because of the phraseology that they, they'd used to say it. And I think that it just reminds me of that, that statement, the, um, the absence of evidence isn't the evidence of absence. Um, and and like, how do you, because this is the thing is when people are, are experts on something, they're sometimes the worst people to communicate it to, to the general public, because they have such a high level of understanding of it that they do risk making people seem stupid. They do risk kind of not, not explaining the nuances and the context of it because it's at such a higher level. What do you think is the answer to that? Like how, you know, how do we communicate these messages and be open and honest with the public about what's going on in science without either totally freaking them out or risking, you know, completely misinforming them?
1: Well, don't do what the UK have done, t- <laughs> <laughs> <think. laughs> over the past... I, I, I think and this is my opinion that um, when I was in in law, there was, you know, there was always this kind of catchphrase that kind of goes across legal, the legal world that, you know, justice must not only be done, but must be seen to be done. And it's why anyone can wander into a courtroom and watch a juicy murder trial. I think that holds absolutely true for science, that, it, that it, it's not just that it's done. It's that you're, you're seen to have total transparency and that, I think, for some of the points that we, we've all raised here, this idea of, to anyone in science, you're comfortable with uncertainty and you're comfortable, comfortable with probabilistic thinking, but people in the public may not necessarily. As a result, there's this bit of a disconnect between, between the, the language and the, and the way that people want to communicate. And I think that sometimes the net effect of that can be, well, we just won't communicate in you know, in, in a more transparent way, we'll we'll dress it up in a certain way, and we'll give people this kind of line. Um, and I I think that's a, a problem. Um, and I think that you know when you when you have things coming to light uh, that relate directly to this concept of transparency, you know when you have Dominic Raab saying, for example, that they're not going to give the results of the um, of the pandemic experiment that was run uh, in 2016. Like, there, there's there's absolutely no reason why those results shouldn't be available for people um, to, to look at. When you look at the the manner in which it's, and again, you know, I'm saying this as someone who is kind of reading what has been said about this, but the, the run up to you know the 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 lockdown and everything measures being taken in the uk there was clearly a disconnect between the kind of the 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 information it seems within the the scientific community within the uk that was being presented um you know and and, and kind of action being taken and, and a lack of transparency in that regard so for me i, I think transparency is fundamental to the process and i think that the scientific community maybe has to be more comfortable communicating to the public that there is grey area and 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 communicating the kind of the warts and all probabilistic nature of of where we're at right now rather than assuming people won't be able to grasp this so we'll just dress it up in a certain way and sell it to them
2: because so i guess as scientists you guys you know you're encouraging a healthy level of skepticism but when everyone's that skeptical and they're already responding from a place of fear, they then mistrust everything. And then that's when they come up with their own devices and they create their own stories. So it's it's such a challenging one.
0: Oh, well, I think the key point there is that people like people are really um strong sceptics on like one single issue or a denialist on a single issue. Usually, like hardcore denialists generally den- deny a, a really broad range of stuff because there's some underlying mechanism that they don't believe in or are, are more sceptical than others on, um, so it's never just like a one-issue thing, like yeah. really it's, they're only sceptical of vaccines or they're only sceptical of climate change. Um, I, was, I
2: was going to say because that's an interesting one because we we brought up 5g but then it's 5g has been inv- evolved into 5g has caused covid19 it's because they want these imposed vaccinations because they want to eradicate cash and it's just
1: bill gates man
2: <laughs> yeah <But laughs> or, it's or, what you said uh, on our podcast david we we're just talking about multiple conspiracies that people buy into
3: yeah so the 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 I guess because I do a little bit of work in conspiracies and and like you said, I found out that no one ever holds one. And the research tends to say that people that are conspiratorially minded tend to hold lots. And there's a psychological and possibly philosophical reason for that. And the philosopher W. V. Quine described it as our web of belief. All of our beliefs are inherently interconnected and you don't really alter them in isolation. So if you have, say, bent your mind around so much that you can accept Let's say all scientists and doctors are in one big conspiracy about one thing, it becomes increasingly easy and in fact necessary to accept the idea, well, obviously there's other conspiracies too. And very quickly you start running on. The other thing I should point to about, like Hannah said, the people that perpetuate these are rarely single offenders, so to speak. And and you might wonder what their motivation is. And I think one of the papers that laid this out barest for me, and, and there was a paper by Karen Douglas, who's a wonderful professor of psychology, who I had the pleasure of sharing an audience with um, with Brian Cox one night. Um, she looked at conspiracy theorists and gave them two different narratives, one that Princess Diana had been killed by the Queen, and another one that Princess Diana faked her own death. And she did the same for Osama bin Laden, basically with the US government replacing the Queen. And people could believe who believed in conspiracy theories believed both of these at the same time. Now, there's no Schrodinger's princess or Schrodinger's bin Laden. There's not an alive and dead princess. That is not. But the problem was the consistency to belief wasn't what they were interested in. It wasn't what motivated them. What motivated them was feeling like they knew something, feeling like they had special knowledge that was superior to the deluded masses. So an, a level of egotism was involved in that. And this makes them very keen to evangelize and they take advantage of people's fear. And it's like, I don't, I don't hold it against people hearing this stuff and being scared and asking me about it, but I do hold and a little bit of contempt, the people that rub their hands together and go, this makes me feel special. So I don't care what the consequences are
1: right. of me sharing that. Right. Yeah. That's, that, that, that uh, you just jogged my memory out of P, research that I read about in, now I, I read about the research in The Scientific American, so I didn't directly read the, the paper, um, but it was uh, an issue that they did on kind of cognitive science and thinking. Um, and it was to do with how we are uh, deal with the kind of facts that we believe if we're shown something that is contrary to those facts, right? So what they did was they they brought in people who identified politically as Republican and was done in the States. Um, and so these were people that as a kind of narrative belief were willing to say that there were WMDs in Iraq and that says, this was the scenario that was presented to them was, WMDs were in Iraq and they justified the the start of the Iraq war and then they were presented with real cuttings from newspaper articles and, and actual evidence that showed that there were no WMDs in Iraq right and it was to do with the order of once they had shown once they had kind of outright stated their belief on the issue when they were shown evidence to the contrary they actually doubled down on the belief so suddenly, like the evidence was a conspiracy, and so they found they reconciled a way to cognitively dismiss what they had been shown in order to actually dig the heels in on the belief in the first place, rather than kind of change the mind.
3: That sounds like that place... Dan Catton's, Yeah, that might be Dan Catton's research at Yale. Okay, it's, it's fascinating. It's really, really, really interesting. interesting stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah, and so that that creates a difficult scenario. For basically everything we've just been been talking about because if you do have someone who even if they're in that place of like the fear or confusion and maybe in their wider community you know maybe for example they're kind of in a kind of very you know uh southern united states like kind of christian you know community where kind of you know some of these issues like climate change go go part and parcel now with with the beliefs um if you're hearing, oh, well, there's this evidence to the contrary, blah, 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 like, it's going to be very difficult for a human being in the way that we think to actually accept that and, and, and reconcile that information that's true against their, their actual beliefs. Um, and so I wonder, in many respects, does communicating actual facts in some circumstances have the opposite effect Um, and people become more entrenched in their belief that they were the first time. I don't don't know. I'm just speculating, but it may be a problem for public Uh, discourse.
3: Hannah probably knows it better than me, but I think that there is evidence for the backfire effect, which I think is exactly what you're describing. That certain people, the more you try to convince them, won't change their mind, but they're always the, I mean, when we're addressing our efforts, I think we have to address it to the middle ground who are non-committed. Right. I think it's probably a waste of our time to try and, I think Hannah, you might, you know, know better yeah, than me on that. I think there's a
0: slight difference there. I mean, the, the researcher, the Dan Cannon, um, he basically, his key point was that often it's not to do with like scientific literacy because as we said earlier, like a lot of the like hardcore denialists are actually quite very intelligent people. Mm. Um, and actually, there's probably like a large segment, or maybe not that large, but a segment there that probably you're just not going to reach, but there's this, this massive group in the middle. And what he, I think he kind of tries to push the, the argument that um, really what you need to breed in them, those types of people is scientific curiosity. So they're mm. actually open to, they don't become very entrenched in their ideas. They're open to challenge and open to actually having the discussion. Mm. Like the small segment we're talking about are just really closed off the discussion and you probably will just not get anywhere but there's a massive segment in the middle where you can um have that discussion
1: hannah one thing i'm, I'm interested in because obviously you know you were saying earlier you've made up like a conscious choice to like communicate science and data in in this way and in the, in the way that you do with our world and data um like in your experience to date is there a a difference or what differences are there and that you've noticed in in the way that information is presented and and do people engage with it more um you know or or you know have you found that this way of communicating is actually ultimately more accessible to people
0: i think it's definitely more accessible than traditional academic research i mean that's that's a given like we have i mean if i could compare it to so if i wrote an academic paper i'd probably reach like 10 people Maybe not quite as few, but like you're talking on like scale of like maybe hundreds if you're lucky. Um, like so we there's there's there is an so we get around two million users or something per month on the website. So that's obviously like a much larger audience. I think we're mm-hmm. still slightly um, fooling ourselves that we're reaching this really mass audience that we think we are. Like ideally, that's the kind of we would we would reach many, many more. And I think we kind of like to think that we're like some type of competitor to Fox News. And I would say that's just not the case. But I think we're still very much pitching well, wait, to, do, uh,
1: do you want? do you want to be? Did you see Fox News' recent legal challenge? Well, where we are
0: de- going to... We, we <laughs> entertainment. be like Fox News for the truth. That was going to be... Yeah.
1: <laughs> Fox but, for truth.
3: Yeah. <laughs> um, we, we, are, we are in an interesting space though because... I mean, I harp on about this a lot, I know, and if anyone has heard me before, they've probably heard me harp on about this. But one of the things about us becoming curators of our own media is that it it has driven political polarization. Because years ago, if you had a weird out there opinion and you went to the pub when you told someone, they'd probably tell you you're a bit weird. So you're less likely to, to get a critical mass of opinion. Now, if I have a bizarre idea, I go online and I find a bunch of people that, don't just have that bizarre idea. They have that bizarre idea on a lot of steroids, right? They have like <laughs> the Arnold Schwarzenegger, that idea. And suddenly I'm reinforced, and I am going further and further away from the middle ground. And people on the opposite side of the spectrum to me are doing the same thing, but the opposite way. And we are seeing, not just in science and health information, for example, conspiracy theory news and science news, we've seen extreme polarization. They, the, never the twain shall meet. But we're seeing that in politics. I go online mm. and I only follow people that are Labour, or I only follow people that are Tories, or whatever. And the problem, and then the other people become the enemy, and suddenly the ability to get things done—we're seeing it in America hugely—is mm-hmm. uh, gone. And I, I kind of—that worries me a little bit. That when yeah. we should be having discussions to find middle ground and to find common understanding and to improve our understanding. We've gone into our little echo chambers quite a bit. So yeah. that's an unforeseen consequence.
0: I mean, yeah. I, I don't, I'm not sure I fully agree. I mean, I think, like, one of the things that we're quite proud of is that, like, we feel, like, often when we put out um, data or charts or whatever, um, like, it's actually very interesting that I'd say we, we have, like, a quite a, a a solid 50-50 balance between, like, left-wing and right-wing. Um, and actually, it's one of the most interesting parts of, of what I do is if, when we put out information and actually... You see discussions going on about why that given thing happened and often they're very very different But like I think it's even a good starting point that they're agreed that actually the data you put out is, is uh, like Fact um, and then they can debate why and, and, and that's actually really interesting discussions to watch But I think mm-hmm. at least we're starting from a point where they're agreeing on what the fact is and then you yeah. can debate on why that's happened so right. I think in that sense, we're possibly um, getting somewhere. Like often it leads to quite uncomfortable situations where like I'll tweet something and then like, I mean, I don't, I'm left wing um, and I don't want to bash right wingers. But sometimes I get some people retweeting me and I'm like, oh, I, I mm. really would rather not associate with <laughs> yeah, yeah But
1: in a way, like
0: I feel like I'm kind of doing my job if someone that I ordinarily really, really disagree with is actually mm. buying into the the information
1: yeah yeah I, i think that's almost the missing link is you know obviously a lot of what we've been discussing has been the very much like you said the entrenched people who you're you're not going to convince or 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 reach but in that middle ground there there still is a lot of productive dialogue that can happen and it's a shame that we're maybe not not getting to do, uh, you know, a lot of that. And um, recently, um, Danny, who... Um, actually, Hannah, you were on Sigma a few a few months ago, but um, on Sigma Nutrition, Danny kind of hosted a, a, a podcast, a very prominent member of the kind of, like, lipid denial community. In fact, um, he's probably the loudest voice in there right now. And the thing was, at the end of the hour and 15 minutes, there was absolutely nothing he said that I agreed with. Like, absolutely nothing. In fact, some of the ideas were just off the wall and, to me, dangerous. But it was actually a really productive discourse in the sense that there was no, like, the actual, the level and the tone of the conversation was really positive and was really productive. And and no one ever got angry and no one ever, and so, in and of itself and we actually had that dialogue then offline afterwards we were like no you know no one no one convinced anyone of the of of their position in that sense but the actual tone of the engagement was something that i wish could go on um certainly in nutrition which is a very divisive subject i I wish we could have those conversations more often um but we can't (laughs) as people start screaming
2: yeah, because it is a case yeah, of picking your thing... battles oh, as well, sorry, isn't then. it? Sorry, I was just saying it because it is a ca- case of picking your battles. Because there are some people you just you're not going to change their mind. And I think that's what we get caught up with in in health and fitness as well. is just who to um, who to pick your battles with, sorry, right?
1: I'm... But I think that the the point was that I wasn't there to change his mind because I knew I wouldn't at the start, mm. um, and he was certainly never going to change mind with 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 the evidence that or lack thereof that he was presenting um it was more about the fact that if you were listening and you were sitting on this fence of confusion you would have heard two people make their case albeit to each other but actually in in kind of my head the way the dialogue was going was i'm making these points for anyone who's listening who's confused Mm. um and not because i'm trying to convert this this person to to the way that i think um and and maybe that in, in a sense is is um helpful because uh, you know, I think a couple of years ago, I would have gone into that being like, I'm going to convince him, you know, he's wrong. And it's just like, no, it's pointless.
3: <laughs> I, I turn down a lot of false balance things these days. If it's very clear cut, like if it's climate change or, or vaccination, I'll turn it down. But occasionally we had a one on Irish television a while ago on nutrition. It was about, you know, basically diets for curing cancer. And they had someone on who I shall not name, but they're well known. Uh, go on. Ah, um, Ivor Cummings I think it was <sighs> but, I know but the point was I went on because I I, I but I think what you do there when you go in those situations is that you realise you are never going to convince those people what you're trying to do is to talk to the 70-80% the of people in the world who haven't got a strong opinion on this and trying to align them that you're putting out the case that this is like look this is what the evidence says I'm not trying to yell I'm not trying to be funny I'm not trying to you know, do fancy oratorical tricks or rhetorical uh, sleight of hand. I'm just saying, here's what the evidence says. And here's why it's potentially dangerous to not follow the evidence. And really he, dangerous? Well, he's very confident of his uh, his lack of expertise is one thing yeah. I would
1: say. So he, he declared himself an expert recently on Twitter uh, because he's read papers for uh, five years. He's an engineer, right? he's an engineer yeah Mm. but that's his sell point he's like the reason i've solved the reason i know cholesterol is a lie is because i'm a complex problem solving engineer
3: (laughs) my 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 father is an engineer and i remember showing my father some of his work and my i think my dad's was a four letter response
1: but i won't repeat that the civilized audience yeah yeah well that that's yeah, I don't know, how did he even wangle onto Irish TV? I'm, to be fair, no, I'm,
3: I, I'm, a, I'm a physicist and physicists are as prone to it as well. I mean, I deal with a lot of physicists who suddenly become experts in everything, including coronavirus. Uh, if you see any of those annoying graphs on Twitter where people do exponential growth and decide the whole world is going to have coronavirus, it's probably Oof. one of ours. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I, they, I've worked in biology long enough to be
1: humble, but they are not. Uh, biological <laughs> sciences will do that.
5: We're getting that a lot though, aren't we? I mean, we're getting it in medicine as well. You're kind of getting like a junior doctor who works in, you know, X region of, of medicine that has absolutely nothing to do with treating COVID patients on, you know, breakfast TV because they were somebody who they happened to get on rather than, you know, like it's it's about someone knew somebody who knew them and said, oh, my friend's a doctor and, you know, more than anything well, yeah, else. Anyone to fill actually
4: working out. on COVID probably doesn't have time to go on this morning <laughs> to talk about it.
3: Just like this, uh, this. Sorry, sorry, go ahead.
4: Sorry, I was going to say, but just to bring this like, back to nutrition, because it's probably a really interesting point for the majority of people that are listening, is that we are really bad at this in nutrition. And I think yeah. one of the reasons is that people are so attracted to people that are sure of themselves. So if I said, yes, all you need to do is cut carbohydrates, nothing like, I know this is facts, this is all you need to do, and I, I know I need <laughs> to get your results, and here's all the people I've got results. That is more attractive than someone saying, Well, you know, it depends on this and this and how active you are. And if, you know, if you've got a certain condition or what you feel like and if it fits in with your lifestyle and all these factors, Mm. that is far less attractive than just being really blunt and blase. And that's why I think people are attracted to people who put out these.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think nutrition falls, um, I think nutrition as, as an area of, of, of kind of science uh, and, and as something that is communicated to the public in the way that you're talking about is is, that, is quite unique in the sense that it may be, to my mind anyway, one of the only disciplines of science that is simultaneously a belief system um, and, and absolutely nutrition, the, the, the foods that one chooses to consume according with their cultural, religious, um, environmental, any of these factors is an ingrained part of an individual's identity. And there's something visceral uh, about that uh, and what it means for someone. And it is a hugely problematic part of, of trying to have discourse. And that issue doesn't even just apply to kind of like the populist space it plays out in the scientific literature as well. I mean, you, 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 you have two or three scientists from that are not nutrition uh, are not from nutrition science backgrounds and um, that have tried to make a publishing career almost in recent years, just, just bashing the field of nutrition as a science because it, because they don't like certain parts of it. Um, and so, uh, and the points that are made go just beyond, you know, when you read these papers, that there's something a little extra there in the writing, like it's personal. Um, and I find that problematic as well. So, you know, you, you have this belief system paradigm that's that's taken hold in nutrition at the populist level, where people, people aren't like, I follow a vegan diet. I am vegan. I am low carb. I am keto. I am whatever. Um, but, but you also have this really divisive dialogue in the scientific community as well, which is generally people from outside nutrition writing about what they hate about the field and people from within the field trying to defend it. Uh, and that trickles down as well to this whole confusion that you've got at the population level. And when you've got that kind of confusion and mistrust, it's very easy for an Ivor Cummins, and a Asim Malhotra, you know, uh, 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 Garth Davis is one of the vegan doctors in America to, to come along, spin whatever nonsense they want, dress it up with a veil of science and, and gather a huge, um, kind of audience and, and momentum. So I think, yeah, I think nutrition itself is really complicated. And and like, and to your point, Em, I think you're right. Because in all of that noise, if you've got someone that comes out of the darkness with the shining light of it's just carbs, you know, then it's it's an attractive thing for people to jump onto.
5: No, absolutely, we've got we've had actually a couple of questions. That was exactly one of them um, on on the live feed. There's lots of people asking quite a lot of questions actually. But yeah, that was. Do you think we also face an issue whereby those who practice good scientific principles are much more likely to admit when there are uncertainties and deficiencies in the available evidence? Whereas there are the cohort of conspiracy theorists and those with an agenda that are much more likely to talk in absolutes and certainties and provide a false but very convincing argument those who may be less enlightened and i i find that exactly to be the case and you know what i find it the case with anti-vaxxers because somebody will will i will be talking about something and somebody who is an anti-vaxxer will go oh but what about did you know that there's this scientific paper that says that there's this much mercury in a vaccine and that this there's the liver can only metabolize this much and then that's why this is bad and then this is bad And i'm not saying this but actually this and then i go oh no i didn't read that paper because I have, like most doctors, assumed that vaccines are okay because we know them to be okay. So, therefore, I don't actually have that knowledge to argue that information with them. And therefore, I I immediately, in in that sort of, if I was in that public setting, I lose that argument, even
3: though it's not correct. I think there's a really good defense to that. So, I get dragged into that a lot. I call it the minutiae argument um, with the 5G stuff. I'm currently debunking a paper that's in JAMA that I won't go into details but essentially it made a very wrong conclusion because the doctor who wrote it can't do stats but this kind of stuff happens all the time you'll have a consensus opinion um what scientists will say whether it's vaccination or whether you know the EMF and health and you'll always have a paper in fact several papers that say the exact opposite I can find you papers that tell you vaccination is harmful I can find you papers that say all sorts of things But the thing about science is it's not based on individual studies, because not all studies are created equal. And one of the things you have to look at when you look at evidence is the wealth and overwhelming picture that the evidence paints. Every single study is a data point of different strengths and different uncertainties. It's what the trend points at. Because if I do a study badly, I can get a result that isn't representative of reality. It happens in medicine all the time. Um, It happens in my own field of cancer research all the time. What actually matters is the symphony of all that data pointing, And I think it's really important to say to people, and when you are confronted with people saying that to you, Mike, I think you can just say, okay, well, that study I haven't read, but I do know the overwhelming scientific consensus is this way, and your one study doesn't undo it. And here's why. And I think just to remind people there's no smoking gun study that does this unless Mm -hmm. you've got millions of people with proper co-founder control and everything. We're building a picture all the time. And sometimes there's bits that just are outliers and don't make sense or are just done badly because a lot of science is done badly or done with an agenda. It does happen. It's the overall picture that always matters. So anyone who's trying to, you know, harangue you down to one thing, doesn't really know what they're talking about. So feel free to embarrass them if you need to.
5: I'm going to write that down. That's going to be my, (laughs) my go-to, my go-to piece. (laughs) I like that. Um, let's see if we've got any other questions. Um I think there's a couple of people exchanging tips on how to bypass paywalls on scientific data websites no. obviously we, SciHub
1: Sci-Hub. <laughs> SciHub
5: that's been that's been mentioned that's been
1: mentioned
2: yeah. there's one so about is really the public access <laughs> Pardon Yeah just open
1: access revolution it's, it's happening The
3: the one thing I would say to people though is never read a paper in isolation because we're seeing it with COVID-19, people that have never worked in the field before reading one paper that suits their prejudice, because again, it's one data point and deciding that they have experts. What's really matter about, what really is important about research is reading it in concert to kind of go, well, the field, this is this, you know, I think that's. there's no substitute for that. Individual papers are useful, but just not to over extrapolate from individual papers is the mm. one bone of, of advice I put into that as well.
0: Start with a meta study or a overview study.
3: Yeah, or review or 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 anything.
0: Review review of all the other papers. Yeah.
3: Or Wikipedia. Seriously, start with Wikipedia, (laughs) and I know people like it is actually very well. So you can follow the citations at the bottom. You can see the talk page if you want to see how legit the page is. Start there, then. Wikipedia is
0: very good, and then you can also just come to Arundale and. and (laughs) Exactly.
1: Exactly. have an open, Hannah, I have noticed you have a, a, a lack of lipid data. <laughs> I mean, to,
0: if you want to send over, I will shoot it right <laughs> up
1: there. You know what? That actually will be really good. <laughs> um, yeah, like, like the stepwise increase in heart disease risk with increasing cholesterol levels. Um, yeah, actually, that could be, that's a little project. Um, but to your point about the, um, the, and this is really unfortunate that that, this has to happen now, but for people that are reading nutrition papers, um, one thing that I've started doing, particularly if I sense even just in the introduction that there's a little bit of spin in terms of an, an issue being framed a certain way or a research question being framed a certain way, is that I, I Google the lead author or the or the last author. Yeah. And so for example, recently I was doing some reading on, on stroke, and nutrition determinants of stroke, and I came across a paper that I, I started reading, although the, the title was, you know, a plant-based diet for stroke. And it was a single author and it was a narrative review. So plenty of opportunity for spin um, and selective citing. But I, I got to one point where that there's, you know, for example, there there's pretty consistent and coherent data on dairy intake and reduced risk of stroke. Um, and it's, it's in different populations across the world. And the, 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 the couple of sentences that dealt with that it just completely like almost like swept it under the rug and dismissed it and you know, it was basically you know I'm, I'm kind of you know being hyperbolic here but it was more like you know oh d- these studies have found that dairy is inversely related with stroke but you'll also die of cancer so uh, you know this kind of thing and um, so anyway i googled the author and of course the first thing that comes back is you know the the lead author is a member of plant-based doctors.org and i'm like that's it this this is a write-off that goes in the bin um you know and i I had i did it recently with a paper that was a a paper on low carbohydrates as the first line intervention for type 2 diabetes and i googled the lead author is a guy called richard Feynman, not to be confused with the great richard Richard Feynman. um (laughs) it's it actually spelled differently thankfully for for deceased richard Feynman, but uh, uh but i googled it and it, you know he was the author of a book about how the nutrition establishment was corrupt and had hidden the evidence for low for low carb high fat diets and I'm like and you're the lead author on a review for low carb diets and diabetes management it's like there's nothing objective i have no trust in either of those circumstances that those authors have been objective
3: and that is one of the problems that i say like scientists are not ab- above reproach here because no. scientists have their own pathological things to, I have a bit of a hobby of, of getting papers retracted. It's a weird hobby but if I come across a paper that's particularly bad You're like I will anoint... Carla. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, do- I''m like a dog with a bone if I see bad science but if I have a t- it's a huge amount of effort to get papers pulled and often there's, there is there's literature like that that you have to read with a skeptical mind and I mean skeptical not denialist in this instance um, where you have to kind of sometimes look up the author and go do they have a, a an interest and sometimes they do. And if, particularly if they have a big social media presence where they're pushing a, you, the one you probably know is, um, is it Dominic Diostino or the guy? Diostino,
1: yeah, the ketogenic yeah. researcher.
3: Long story. I do a lot of stuff over in Tampa for cancer research, and he happens to be in a friend of mine's department, and she has opinions of him, which are interesting. But again, if you didn't know that, you saw one of these alleged papers, you might be very convinced. If you mm. then look up the person, you might be less so.
1: Right. Because mm. he got funding from the U.S. government, which, uh, uh, you know, for, for research into Navy SEALs divers originally. So that all seems, you know, this, this is like air of kind of legitimacy to that. And he really kind of plays that card as like, no, I'm I know I'm a keto guy, but I'm actually a scientist first. And then, of course, you kind of spend more time listening to him on various platforms. and You're like, no, you're keto first. <laughs> <And> that's <laughs> that's the problem.
3: <laughs> Am I mixing him up he in Porn first? I think he that was his one of them had a previous <laughs> no not not to judge but I remember I, no, remember I, I don't know it's
1: the first time I'm hearing
3: it yeah well it might have been him but I remember it was one of us I remember Googling it and finding out that you shouldn't Google without the safe search on when you're looking up this particular author because um, I did it in work and that was a mistake but I can't remember if it was him or not so <laughs> we better
5: another uh, Sally hmm. Sally his name just in case
2: so yeah. th- that seems like a perfect note to finish off. Your- <laughs> no, I'm just, on. I'm going to ask one more question
5: because there's, there's just this, I just wanted to just touch on this because I thought this was really interesting and I think I know where the answer is going to go and we probably need to be quick about it because we have run it, run it over time already, but I think this is a good one to ask. Do you not think that the likes of Garth Davis needs to be more extreme as a U.S. clinician since U.S. eating habits are so backwards and surrounded around meat consumption? So that speaks to kind of the idea that is there ever a place for people to to be extreme in their views in order to get a point across because I've seen that argument be given like even in the coronavirus context that oh yeah we have you know people are overselling the um, the dangers of it because they want people to listen to the rules about lockdown and all that kind of stuff can you just very briefly that's a, a hard thing to ask I know about a context like this but but can you can you shed some light on that for us?
1: Well, for me in a nutrition context, it's absolutely never justified. And and the biggest reasons why it's not justified is like the problem that I have with that, with the, the way that question was phrased is and certainly in an American context it makes it look as if everyone's just choosing to like you know eat ribeyes all day. The, the reality is that the biggest driver of this standard Western diet and consumption is socioeconomic factors. Um, and people in society that have the highest level of consumption of these food products are people who are in an economic situation where they essentially have no choice in that matter. Um, And so the idea that Garth Davis would come along and evangelize a a vegan diet when half the people in the country that he's conveying this as everyone should do this, maybe don't have basic food preparation skills, don't even have a kitchen, um, don't have the ability to, to produce this diet. And so, um, you know, I, I have a problem with like veganism ultimately is a diet of privilege and you need a lot of, uh, time, knowledge, food preparation skills, um, and the ability to supplement, to fill the gaps as well with some key nutrients. So the idea that, 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 just applies and that that justifies evangelism for a particular diet um you know absent all other considerations for why we have this diet in the west um i just i can't see a justification for it ever and
0: i think ultimately in the end it backfires because i mean if i take the climate change example like a lot of people would say no i need to get people to take this seriously so i need to like stress that you know in a decade like we might all die from this and it's this drastic but the point is like 10 years from now we won't all die from this and then you just look like an idiot and it's just played into the opposite side's hand because then they can just say hey you said we would all die by now and you're clearly lying um so i think in the end it backfires
3: well we have that with covid 19 if we don't do enough in lockdown we get massive amounts of death so epidemiologists call it the epidemiological paradox if they do just the right amount and not enough people die people will complain said you overreacted
1: if they do, right. if
3: they don't know people you didn't react yeah. enough so you can't yeah. win
1: sometimes yeah. and nasim taleb published a kind of paper in january about the precautionary principle and how it had to apply and he was just like in this context an overreaction is a good reaction yeah um but i think those circumstances are are limited, and I I don't extend that to the Garth Davis kind of yep. vegan vegan evangelism context either. You know, so I I don't
3: I don't think it's right to, as a scientist to ever deliberately engage in misleading hyperbole, no matter how good your intentions, because I think you undermine your credibility and you you can you muddy the picture. So no, yeah, not okay. So. Yeah. Thank you. That's all. Awesome.
2: I, I, can we close with um, Andrew's comment? Just because I thought it was funny at the right at the end, there only the Sith deal in absolutes.
3: <laughs> I was thinking, that. <laughs> that, <that's> <laughs> which which technically is an absolute. <laughs>
2: yeah, that's very true. Yeah, very that's true. why the <laughs> Jedi Order got wiped out. They couldn't work out exactly. their own statements. <laughs>
5: <laughs> order
3: sixty six couldn't happen fast enough. <laughs> amazing.
5: Amazing. Oh. Guys, that is, was amazing. Thank you so much for kicking off Fitness Unfiltered 2020 in true style. Um, I think we really enjoyed that. That was brilliant.
2: Yeah, that was awesome. Masterclass in critical thinking kicks off the weekend. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you.
5: Very oh, it was minutes. a pleasure.
0: And thank you for hosting this weekend. Like, I'm really looking forward to the rest of it. Oh,
1: yeah. So so are and we. We are David so and Hannah, it was great to be on a panel yeah. with you guys. Yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed that. Yeah. I hope
0: someone in the comments understood what we were saying. <laughs> I
1: mean, we've had a
5: we've had a lot a few, of
3: discussion actually. It's, it's, yeah, there's it's a, a few researchers. Passion,
2: like. There's a few science researchers by the looks of the comments as well. So it's worth yeah. a little scan. To be emails.
3: fair, a lot of people think I'm American. Like a lot of my hate mail says I'm American. They obviously don't <laughs> know what I am. So for big
2: pharma. I, I grew uh, up in
3: the I grew up in the Middle East, and I sound like some kind of weird half Irish hybrid. Are you an expat <laughs> as well? Uh,
1: I grew oh, up. An ex-
3: Oh, well, there you go. We're ex- we're not
1: we're never immigrants. We're expats. No, I grew up in Hong Kong, so when I when I got back to Ireland at the age of thirteen, I had a really fucked up expat accent. Didn't when I moved well. back
3: to when I moved back to Ireland, I was speaking like this, and you don't move back to Ireland speaking like this and no. not get the living shit out of you. So you you, 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 you learned you know, fairly quick how to moderate. <laughs> yeah. And that, on that note. <laughs> Yeah, Yeah,
2: Tom's also just thrown in there. Speaking as a former fetus, that was fantastic.
5: (laughs)
3: Amazing. (laughs)
2: Thank Um, you so much, guys. Cheers.
3: Brilliant, guys. guys. So much. Take care.